Hello. <laughs> this is um, an absolute joy and an honour. Thank you, Stephen, for, for inviting me to do this. Um, slightly nerve-wracking as well. This is my training ground for a classroom of 30 kids from September, I think. So uh, we'll see how we go. Absolutely. Yeah, blow about the water. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'm a big fan of witty slogans emblazoned on things. Um, I appreciate this is not everyone's thing, but I would happily fill my wardrobe with clothing that expresses something of me. Um, so this is one of my favourite hoodies uh, that you might have seen me, me wearing. Hold on, let me overthink this. Um, it absolutely explains what's going on in my head for much of the time. Um, I've had some affirmations that are important to me inscribed on bracelets um, as a visual reminder of, of what I believe God is saying to me. And I've also got a collection of mugs and witticisms, so keep calm and carry on. Um, and Mark used to have a corresponding mug that said, now panic and freak out. Um, and this is one of Benjamin's sayings that makes us chuckle, so I committed it to posturey as well. Hey you, do it for you. Um, we're always just hilarious in our house the whole time. So recently, as a family, we went to Spring Harvest for the day, and within 10 minutes, I'd made a beeline for the book and gift stall, where there were sorts of uh, tea towels, coasters, pens, necklaces, and travel mugs with Bible verses on them. Fantastic. You know, it's brilliant to be encouraged by Scripture and to encourage others. Except. And it's really interesting that um, Andrew's introduction to the June newsletter is kind of along this theme as well. So, except, what if by taking a line of Scripture and stripping it of its background, we're in danger of losing the real meaning. And I've definitely heard Stephen preach more than once that if we take a text out of its context, then we end up with a con. Um, and John Pettifer has also preached here a number of times and exhorted us to read our Bibles daily, not to get our theology from songs or single verses that we've turned into slogans, but to really engage with the Bible in its entirety. So today we're going to take a whistle-stop tour through the Bible and attempt to reground three verses, lyrics, and Bible stories so that we can kind of grasp the depth of this wisdom. So my talk this morning is entitled, There are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. Um, and at the end of the service, there'll be the opportunity to place orders for t-shirts, mugs, caps, and tea towels. I'm kidding. We're not there yet. Maybe one day. So the first verse I want to look at is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It's a wonderful verse, affirming and hopeful, and often we like to write it inside cards and Bibles when people first decide to follow Jesus or take that step of baptism. But I think sometimes there can be a danger that we quote this verse as a talisman, when what we really mean is, I hope all goes well with you, because no one really wants to go through the pressing and the crushing of the grapes that makes new wine that um, Femi spoke about recently in his sermon around resilience. But actually, there are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. So let's look at the verse in its context. So Jeremiah was a deeply unpopular prophet um, speaking to God's people around the time of exile into Babylon. After a long period of God's people disobeying the word of God, there came a period of judgment. God's people, it seemed, had been defeated. The temple in Jerusalem had been ransacked, and both people and temple treasures had been carried off into Babylon. 
At the time, there was a false prophet, Hananiah, who we read in Jeremiah chapter 28, told the people of Israel that they would be in exile for just two years, at which point he claimed that God would restore the articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken, along with the people of God, to their lands. And Jeremiah's response is, and I'm paraphrasing, Amen. I hope that's true. I really do. But essentially, time will tell if you're actually a spokesperson for God or if you're speaking from your own opinion. And what did happen was that God revealed to Jeremiah that Hananiah was talking nonsense and that because of his rebellion against God in telling the people what they wanted to hear, he was going to die, and which he did seven months later. At which point the true word of God comes through Jeremiah. So we'll pick this up in Jeremiah 29.1 and it will be on the screen. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisar, son of Shaphan, and to Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yet this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You may say, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, but this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in this city, your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine and plague, and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and an object of horror, of scorn and reproach among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declared the Lord, words that I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets, and you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. So when we look at that verse in the context of the wider passage, it gives us a fuller picture. Yes, 
God has a plan to redeem his people. God is good. But he entreats his people to put down roots, plant gardens, marry, have children. His assurance is that he will prosper them, that he will be with them, that he will again gather them in the land of their ancestors. But first, they must endure this period of 70 years in Babylonian exile. They must refuse to listen to the deceiving prophets amongst them. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, but there are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. I love this song. I can um, feel the collective tension rolling off the worship band right now as they wonder what I'm going to say about it. Um, So this is a line from the song No Longer Slaves that we sing here at Hope fairly regularly. The song talks of being chosen by God, of being delivered from our enemies, of being born again into God's family, and of being surrounded by God's love, of no longer being enslaved by fear because we know who we are. I am a child of God. You are a child of God. And then the bridge says, You split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears are drowned in perfect love. You rescued me so I could stand and say, I am a child of God. Wonderful, affirming lyrics that come so much from this idea that we celebrate and proclaim, particularly in Pentecostal churches, that we are overcomers in Christ. Yes, we are. (laughs) But does being an overcomer in Christ mean that we shortcut the hardships of life? Does overcoming mean hitching a drone ride over the valley of the shadow of death rather than going through it? So I just wanted to briefly think about where this imagery of God splitting the sea so we can walk through it comes from. What was the lead up to this miraculous event? The context is found in the book of Exodus and the story of the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt, where they've been enslaved for generations. This is the story that is retold during Passover celebrations and which forms a foundation to our own understanding of the Easter story, which we celebrated fairly recently. God's people, the Israelites, have been enslaved by Pharaoh. Forced labor, making bricks for the building of pyramids and other Egyptian architecture. Um, It's not my area of historical specialism, so I'll stop there. God sends his spokesperson, Moses, who incidentally grew up in Pharaoh's palace, to declare to the ruler, let my people go and worship God in the desert. Pharaoh says no, and so begins this back and forth dialogue between God via Moses and Aaron as spokesman and Pharaoh. Pharaoh increases the labor requirements of the Israelite slaves, but God promises deliverance. God begins to send plagues on the land. Pharaoh begins to relent and say they can go, but then reneges on that again and again as his heart hardens. And the culmination is the tenth plague, the plague on the firstborn, whereby the angel of death will sweep the land of Egypt and kill all the firstborn males, whether livestock or human. God's people are called to sacrifice a lamb, to put the blood of the lamb on the lintels and doorposts of their homes so that the angel of death will know to pass over those homes and the firstborns will be spared. And this is where we get the imagery of Jesus as the lamb of God and the sacrifice of his blood that spares us and real richness when we can kind of comprehend that. So anyway, the angel of death sweeps through the land. Pharaoh finally says, go. And the Israelites leave the land in a hurry, but on foot, 600,000 men plus women and children. God led them by pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. 
And then Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues them because essentially he realizes that he's just let a whole workforce of free labor walk away. So it's against this backdrop with the armies of Egypt pursuing them in chariots and on horseback that they come to the Red Sea. God at this point has actually moved his presence of the pillar behind the Israelites, positioning himself between the Egyptian army and his people, hemming them in. You hem me in behind them before, says David in Psalm 139. And this was God literally hemming in his people. But they have a problem, and it's a great body of water. So God enables Moses to part the sea using the staff that he'd given him, and the Israelites cross on the sea on dry land to escape their pursuers before the water is brought back down on the Egyptian army, drowning them. He drowns the Egyptian army. He drowns our fears in his perfect love. But there's one standout verse in this whole story in um, Exodus 13, 17 to 18, which I've often missed, actually. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, ready for battle. There are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God, and I can testify to times in my own life when God has split the metaphorical sea for me to walk right through it, but it hasn't necessarily followed that that was a shortcut or was an easy path, far from it. Um, So finally, I told you it was whistle-stop, we're going to take a look, um, very brief look at Matthew 4, where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. So before Jesus began his earthly ministry, we read in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 2, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Probably the biggest understatement in all of scripture. Um, I'm not sure about you, but uh, my children can't seem to go one hour without protesting that they're hungry. And Isabel stayed in just to pull faces at that because she heard me say this yesterday. Um, It says in Philippians 2 that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself of his divinity. So that is to say he set aside and restricted his divine attributes so that he could be fully human. So after fasting for 40 days, although he was the son of God, we could assume, I think, that Jesus was weakened physically, hungry, vulnerable, human. The tempting by the devil took three ways. The first two, challenging his identity to the core. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. But it's the third challenge that I want to look at in Matthew 4, verses 8 to 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This third temptation, well, this is the shortcut. Satan, as the prince of this world, is free to make this offer. Bow down to me, Jesus, and I will give you all these kingdoms, but a servant to me. Take the shortcut, Jesus. Did God really say that you need to suffer and die and rise again in order to rule this world for all eternity? Does that sound familiar? 
If Jesus had taken the shortcut, he would have avoided the horror of the cross, the pain of taking our sin and shame upon him, the devastation of being deserted by all those who profess to love him, temporary separation from the Father. But at what cost, both to him and to us? Praise you, Jesus, that you didn't take the shortcut offered by Satan, but again rebuked him with scripture, for it is written, worship me, no, doesn't say that, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I was doing so well. And as a result, the risen Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 18, was able to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Hallelujah. So, I just want to end this talk by focusing on the goodness of God. You know, our God is a redeemer God. We see it again and again in the Bible, in the stories of Joseph, David, Ruth, Job, and Jesus, to name just a few. We see the redemptive hand of God. When we think there is no hope for the teenager Joseph, who is sold into slavery by his brothers, or for the king after God's own heart, David, who commits adultery and murder to then cover up his transgressions. Or for the Moabite widow, Ruth, destitute in a foreign land ruled by exploitative men. For the God-fearing man, Job, who loses children, possessions, health and friends to be told by his own wife, curse God and die. For the Son of God, Jesus, who people expected to come by power and might to overturn the Roman rulers, but who died a horrific death on a cross. For each of these heroes of faith, this was not the end of their story. They were walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but God wasn't finished. God can and does redeem our darkest times for his kingdom. Joyce Mayer is quoted as saying, your mess can become your ministry, if you will have a positive attitude and decide to let everything you go through prepare you for what is ahead. I do not want any of my friends and family to go through the dark times. Of course I don't. I don't want to go through the dark times. But that does not have to be the end of our story. Ours is a good, good father. There are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. But we do have a God that walks the long and dark road with us. And that's a truth that's definitely worth sticking on a T-shirt.